We're making some progress here in our Bible overview. Go ahead and turn to uh, Hebrews, not Acts, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. We'll go ahead and pray. God, what a delight it is to come before you, that we have access to your throne through your son, that we can even come to you in prayer and know that you hear our voices. You hear the cries of our hearts, God. This is astounding. And not only that, but you have given your son and you've given your son as a a full revelation of you. And you've given that not only in the flesh, but now in this written word. And so we come to your word and ask that you would use this to conform our lives further into the image and of your Son, God. And from one degree of glory to the next, that we will be conformed to be less like our old self and more and more like your Son. So we just ask that you would... Make yourself known in this time through your spirit. Amen. The cries would rise out down the hallway of our house growing up. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. It was the song of two competitive boys in the house, in, a, in our, in our home, and it was an anthem that we would sing to one another. But it was useless, utterly useless for me to be the one singing this. For my brother, who was several years older than me, he was several inches taller than me, which isn't hard to do, but he pulled it off. And, um, so he's older, he's, you know, smarter, bigger, faster, stronger, everything, you know, you I'd do some push-ups, he'd go, hey, good job, chubs, you know, and then crank out 50 more than me, or, or go to the weight room, you do put, you know, you do some on, he goes, you know, you try to do whatever, and he goes, oh, nice job, throws on another plate, you know, and then he does that, and then you finally get to that, and he goes, hey, hey, good job, chubs, and he puts on three plates and cranks it out, and you go, what, why am I even trying? It's as, as if by nature he was far superior than me, and there's nothing I could do. It's the affections of, well, which is why he was the, the favorite son of my mother, which is quite clear. And it was just his superiority over me in all of these realms. There's nothing. Sports? No, they don't have a chance. Academics don't even try. Socially talking to people? Don't, it's not worth it. It's far, vastly superior to me in all things. That's what we get here in the book of Hebrews. What you will see is that Christ and Christ alone is far superior than anything. Any sphere of your life, any desire that you might have, any inkling you might have to go back to a former way of life, you will see that Christ is far superior than it all. So... We're going to see this in the text... That Christ is superior. You're going to look in verses 1 and 2. You're going to see that Christ is far superior. You're just in the revelation of God. 
that God is revealing himself to his creation through Christ. Christ is superior in that. Christ is superior in his nature, just who he is. Is far greater than anything you could imagine. And then so it naturally flows from that. We're going to finally look at his work briefly if we have time. The work of Christ and how that is far superior than anything we might desire. So it's what's happening here. Well, we don't, the author here in Hebrews isn't he doesn't give in, you know, like Philemon, you say, you look here in the previous page, it says Paul. Well, who wrote it? Paul. Paul wrote it. But Hebrews, we don't quite know, but we, we do know, I do think it's a Pauline sermon, just as a side note, I think it's a Paul sermon, it was written down by someone else. Kind of has that oral, this is, a, okay, a tangent. It has that oral feel to it, right? And so you go to chapter 8, I think in verse 1, and he, it's like he catches himself. He says, well, the main point of what I'm trying to get at is this. And if it's, if you, so guys, if you want to learn how to preach, what do you do? Read the book of Hebrews again and again and again and again. It's a magnificent sermon, I think by Paul. But, so we don't quite know what's going on, but it seems as though the people are in the midst of this persecution. Not heavy, fairly light, which is sometimes the worst kind. And it's going on. So you look in, in chapter 3, verse 6, and it says, But Christ is faithful over God's house. And if we are of his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and in our hope. So he's telling them, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast, don't give up. And it says also in verse 3, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold we don't let go, but we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in chapter 12, it says, Consider him who endured, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So it seems as though there's this light persecution that is happening. And it's tempting the people to, to come and turn away from Christ. And to abandon the faith. So what happens here is in the Roman Empire, you have this, this pressure going on. This societal, this religious, this political pressures going on. And what's earlier on, the, the Christians who would be able to gather in the, in the synagogues with, with the Jewish believers, or with the Jewish, uh, their Jewish brethren, who are just uh, acting out their um, Jewish faith. But they would be able to go to the synagogues. And what the Roman Empire loved was old-time religion. That's what they loved. So, when you have famine and plagues, why is it in the Roman, in their, in their understanding? Well, it's because the people hadn't, been faithful to the old gods, the original gods of Ramis and all these guys. And so what they would do is, even though 
Even though they didn't like Judaism, they would make allowances for it because it was an old religion. And so they would, the, the Jews would oftentimes be able to kind of float under the radar in the Roman Empire. So as a Christian, what happens when you're no longer, you're being kind of pressed out of the synagogues, in the Roman Empire, you're no longer under this, this covering of protection because you're seen as a state as part of Judaism, but you're going out into your own. And so you're a new religion that's calling people to not worship the emperor, but to worship the true king, Jesus Christ. So you've gone from being protected to now, oh, you're part of the problem. So when we have famines in the region, why is it? Well, it's because of the Christians. We're losing battles. Why is it? It was because of the Christians. The constant scapegoat. And hadn't risen up at this point to the point, as it says, of their shedding of blood. But admittedly, sometimes these small temptations are the most difficult to deal with. Someone pulls out, you know, their sword and they say, are you a Christian? Well, you say, yes. And you're beheaded and you go into glory. Difficult for a short period of time. What if that goes on and on and on? And they don't want your life, but they take a little bit of your crops. They take a little bit of money. They take your daughter. All of that. Just small little things, small little things, small little things. And you go, oh, what if I could just, I could just go worship in the temple. I could just go back. Go back to Judaism. It would be so much easier to go back to my former way of life. And so, what you will see in Hebrews is the author saying, you can't go back. You can't go back at all. You can't, you can't turn away from Christ and go back to Judaism. So you've got to ask yourself, what would you do in this situation? How would you counsel someone in this? Wanting to go back to their former way of life. Maybe it's not Judaism. Maybe it's whatever it might be. Of drugs or pride or a career. How would you counsel them through this? Well, the author of Hebrews, what he does is he brings them to look to Christ. Through all of it, he draws them to look to Christ. And so this Christological focus that we see in Hebrews is the natural way to deal with this situation. But it's a natural way for all of us to deal with our situation, whatever it might be. We are trained through this to look to Christ, whatever it might be. You're tempted to go back to your former life. and This Christian life is a little bit harder. It's not what I thought. I'm in the mission field and now I have leukemia. Thanks, God. This is great. And you're tempted to go back in bitterness and lack of joy to your former way of life. So yes, I'm a professing Christian, but I have to admit that I'm being tempted to do these unmistakable things with this other man or this other woman. Or yes, I'm I'm professing to be a Christian, but I must admit, I'm, every day I'm tempted to go back to drinking. So the author of Hebrews, what he wants you to see is that the issue is not your drinking, but that the issue 
is that we need to see a deeper understanding of God and of Christ. So yeah, I might enjoy getting a little tipsy sometimes, but no, no, look at Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That, that is far, far better. So let's, let's go to our text here and see how, just in these first couple of verses, what you see in verses 1 through 4 is kind of an outline then that you see blasted out throughout the rest of the, the epistle. So we'll just look at these first couple of verses here. Long ago, and in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by, how did he do it? By the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So here you see Christ is the revelation of God. And it's quite remarkable here. The author knows that the people are are tempted to turn back to Judaism. But what he doesn't jump to, you think you would just jump right to the, the sacrificial system and the temple and all of that. But no, he goes and he he gets deep down below it and he cuts down right down to the bedrock. The very revelation of God that was given to the prophets upon which all everything else is built. So... Think about it. If you're going to make a, a God, if you're going to create him, either he's going to be distant and powerful, like Allah in Islam, or he'll be close and neutered and unable to do anything, like Hinduism. But what you have in Christianity, the God of the Bible, is this transcendent God who is over all, but yet is so close and, and communes with his people. You... You even see this with your husbands, right? Our chances are, ladies, if you get married, you get married to a man who's strong and exercises dominion. He provides well. Chances are he could also be distant. Or you have a husband who snuggles you and he's close and he shares all of his thoughts. But he doesn't accomplish much. He doesn't exercise much dominion at all. But you even see this, you see how it plays out in in human life. But it's nearly impossible to have both. But Israel was the crown jewel of all of the nations. You see this in Deuteronomy 4. They say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Or what great nation is there that has a God so near to it? As the Lord our God is to us. Whenever. Whenever we call upon him. The nations look to Israel. With great awe. You have a God who could subdue Pharaoh. Who could administer ten plagues. You have a God who could. Wipe out. Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Exercises dominion over everything. Yet he is so close to us. To hear us whenever we call upon him. So this revelation of God is is astounding. And and it happens at, at many times. 
with Adam and Eve and the call of Abraham and Moses when he's there talking with God multiple times on the top of Mount Sinai or in many ways walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening or through the burning bush or even through the lips of the prophets. God has revealed himself through the prophets to his people. But as if that wasn't great enough, there's something far greater that is now here. God is revealing himself through his only son. For the prophets by necessity were recurring and again and again and again for the words were incomplete. But when the son came, the prophets ceased. Even even grammatically, it kind of gets leveled out here a little bit in the English. It says God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his son. So what's happening here in the Greek is that this first one is it's a participle. We get technical here. It's, it's a participle. It's, it's subservient how God is speaking through the, through the prophets. Main verb. God has spoken. It's done. It's complete. God has spoken through his son. That's it. It builds in anticipation to this climax of God. Whose overall has come and has spoken to us through his son. In the midst of our brokenness and depravity. So hear the, hear the words. God calls us Christ. He's called us to repent for the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. And he, He reveals himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And notice how he fills this out here. He talks about his son, and then he can't help himself. He says, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Unless you think his proximity, his 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 being so close to us, to, to speak to us, Distracts from his majesty. All nations. Everything. He shall inherit them all. So Ukraine will find. Its proper place. Not under the dominion of Russia. But under the lordship and dominion of Christ. Psalm 2. Says I will tell of the decree the Lord said unto me. You are my son. Today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This God who is so close and so intimate to you rules over the nations. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. So the nations belong to Christ. But it's not only that. Through whom also he created the world. So Christ will have a complete dominion in the future. But in the beginning he even had complete dominion then. This is like a a nice way of saying... Is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
He was there at the creation of the world and he was there and he was eternally pre-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he shall rule and reign over all things as he is the heir of it all. So this great God has come so close to us in the flesh and he has given to us the revelation of God. God revealing himself to his people. We hear about this all the time, but don't you realize how astounding this is? How many many years have we walked in darkness not seeing the revelation of God? And now we have it in Christ. So he gives the true words of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears me, my word, and believes him who sent me, what does he have? He has eternal life. And the words that I've spoken to you, Christ says, are spirit and life. So we can be warned then, if these words that he speaks to us are spirit and life, we can be warned that he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them. Why? Because you do not believe Brothers and sisters, pray that God would open your ears and open your eyes to the revelation of God. So we listen and we hear. For my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I will give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one, no not no one, will snatch them out of my hand. So this is why it matters. This is why it matters that God has spoken to us through his son. These words, these words are the means by which he effectually calls us and gives us life and holds on to his people and brings them back to the father as purified little lambs back to God. So when you hear the voice of God, It is the call of life to your soul. It's calling you to turn away, but not just turn away. It's calling you to have life. Don't push it away. Don't push it away, but listen and follow. All right, so we've seen that God has spoken through his son, which is vastly superior, far superior than all of the prophets. But now we'll see what it means for this son and who he really is. Let's go. Let's just read through the verses again. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3. Tell me more about this Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the... His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Three things you're going to notice here. The radiance of the glory of God. That he is the exact imprint of his nature. Of the nature of God. And he upholds. As if it wasn't enough that he creates it. But he's he's going to uphold it for you too. Uphold all of creation. So what is the radiance of the glory of God. And 
This is one of those things you go through the Bible and you can look at the words and you go, I know what these words mean, but I have, all I know is that I have no idea the depth of what is really happening here. I'm unable to comprehend all of this. So you see the radiant glory of God in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is brought, the prophet Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. And above him stood the seraphim. The, the radiance of God is so glorious that you have these seraphim in Hebrew, the burning ones. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so then the natural result of Isaiah, of seeing all of this, is that he knows, I'm a man who, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he's humbled and he's broken. But what is the radiant glory of Christ there that broke Isaiah? John 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. The glory of Christ is what he saw. So we don't have time now. Let's skip this over. But when you go home, read the account of the transfiguration. You think Christ is glorious. Get a picture of what he looks like when he begins to pull back the veil of all of his glory. So not only that, but he's the exact imprint of his nature. He's, as they would say, a a die or a cast being pressed down into a coin. So the coin represents exactly what was imprinted on it, this this die. Not one deviation, one way or the other. There's another word, a cone, that you could have used, which we get acorn, which is meanings merely like it in, in form. Or in features. But it's not that. It's the exact representation of it. And he has. And not only that. But it's not just the exact representation of God. But of God's nature. Do you see that? You have to add that on. As though Christ is representing the very essence. The substance. The nature. And the real being. And the essence that makes God. God. Christ has that in him. If you were looking at John, what would John say? Well, John would put it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is the Word, is Christ with God? Well, yes, He is. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Well, is Christ God? Yes. He's the exact imprint of His nature. So He's with God, yet He is God. So when you're tempted to turn away because you think Christ isn't worth it, you're confronted with this reality that he is the revelation of God. And his words bring life. So Christ is far superior. You see that Christ is superior to the angels in Hebrews 1, why Why the angels? Because the angels administered the law. They brought the law. So it's not that he's above the law. He's above the angels who delivered the law. So he's above those. He's above the law himself. The law represents the standard of God. Christ is God. 
What is he? He's the obedient son. He's the suffering servant. He's the eternal high priest interceding for his people this very moment. You want to know why heaven shall endure forever? Because Christ continues forever. And he holds to the priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So draw near to God. And you will see that it isn't you who is holding on to God. But rather it is Christ who is holding on to you. And he shall keep you and hold you forever and ever. Don't you see that Christ is far better than anything? You go back to drinking. You're drunk and you're horrible. You feel terrible the next day. But no, you have Christ who is interceding for you and will uphold you, not just through your temptation and trials, but he will hold on to you forever through glory. Here's the catch. It's not only the priest who makes the sacrifice, who goes and intercedes on behalf of his people in the presence of God, but he's also the sacrifice himself. Other sacrifices of bulls and doves and rams and goats, they were never sufficient to satisfy the holy wrath of God. That's why they had him again and again and again and again. But Christ is sufficient because, well, he did this once and for all for when he offered up himself. Hebrews 10, it says, but those sacrifices are a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the bull, blood of bulls and rams and goats to take away sin. This is why, we'll go back to our text, this is why the author can say this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is why Christ is able to purify us from our sins. Because he didn't send another, but no, he, he sent himself. And then in Hebrews 9. eleven, When Christ appeared as a high priest of all the good things to come, he entered through the great and more perfect tabernacle, not the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, but no, the pure temple, the temple of where God himself is dwelling. Not made of human hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered that holy place once and for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. Beloved, here is your Christ. He's the great revelation of God. He's the one who's so near to you. Even though he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, of the very essence that makes God, God. And he's the eternal high priest who has come in the flesh, both merciful and faithful. And because of this, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. For he himself was tempted in that which he suffered. 
But this great high priest is also the sacrifice. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this great high priest is interceding for you at this very moment. So what do we do? Briefly, very briefly. Three things. One, know this. The sufficiency of Christ leads directly, the sufficiency of Christ leads directly to the exclusivity of Christ. If Christ is sufficient and Christ alone is sufficient, well then He then is the only way. So not only does He satisfy you in a way that nothing else can, but you must reckon with the idea that Christ is the only way to be truly satisfied. The sufficiency of Christ leads directly to the exclusivity of Christ. Number two, Christ is superior, vastly superior to all. Therefore, what do we do? We give all unto Him. If Christ is greater than all that you have, doesn't it make sense that you would give all that you have to Him? What are you holding back from God? There's something. There's something you're holding back. Your reputation, you don't want to be known as the fanatical Bible thumper. Reluctance to have time wholly devoted to Him. Maybe you don't believe yet, and you're holding back yourself, you think. But this God of grace will richly supply you with all that you need. For He's given Him, He's given you His Son. The natural response is that we give everything back to Him. And finally, because Christ is greater, then all you see this plea throughout Hebrews do not turn to the right nor to the left, but continue to go towards Christ. He writes, Let us run with endurance of the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we do? Consider him. You're tempted, you're tried, you're weary, and you want to turn away from Christ. Well, consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son. Not, Not just some diplomat to speak on behalf of of you and your kingdom, but God, you you sent your eternally begotten Son who has created all things and upholds it now, even as we speak. And the Son, who is the eternal high priest, is now interceding on behalf of us, his bride. And he's able to come back into your presence. And we are able to come back into your presence because of the blood of Christ. God, fashion our hearts in such a way that we do not grow callous or cold against this. God, let us see that your Son is sufficient in all things. And because he is superior to all God, let us give all everything we have to him. Let us not hold anything back, God. 
And when we are tempted, and we are tried, and when we are tired, and when we want to turn back and go to another way, God, let us fix our eyes upon your Son and walk towards him. And pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.